Once you've marked hymn number 256, as Brother Eddie has asked us, I would invite your attention with me to that book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. As our youngsters and others have been diligently working their way through the book of 2 Samuel in preparation for the Bible Bowl, we have also engaged in a series of studies ourselves on their Sunday evening time periods in which we too have taken a look at the book of 2 Samuel. To this point, as we've looked at the first six chapters of that book, we have been reminded of so many powerful and noble truths from the days long past that nonetheless are timeless in their character. In the sense that David, as he appreciated the thoroughness and power of God's promises on his behalf, began his ascendancy toward the kingdom and its rulership. And to that extent, that closed our lesson last week. Could we perhaps remember that some of the highlights of that lesson may well have included these thoughts and ideas? The removal of the household of Saul, bringing us to the recognition that God had promised due to his failure with regard to the destruction of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, that he would remove him and elevate one who would be the neighbor of Saul, but who was nonetheless better than he, and that one who, of course, was David, would become the next king of united Israel. That ascendancy took place in the fifth chapter of 2 Samuel. Though originally he had already been king of Judah, he now was invited by the other tribes as well, and David ascended the throne and thus became the ruler again of the united kingdom of Israel. With those thoughts in mind, however, David quickly decided the goodness and greatness of combining the capital city governmentally and the city of religious significance. That is, to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, and have it housed in the same city, combining religiously and governmentally the center of the empire. That city of Jerusalem would, of course, be the one David chose as capital. We do remember, though, in chapter 6, that rather encompassing saga when in David's attempt to bring the Ark, Uzzah lost his life when the Ark was not brought in accordance to the very commandment of God. And that great lesson taught us also the impressive need to not only appreciate God's command, but to ever be certain to carry them out precisely in the way God has commanded, taking no liberty of presumptuousness on our part to change, modify, or alter what God has proclaimed in any way. With all that said, though, that does prepare us to continue our journey through the book this evening in chapter 7. So as we look at chapters 7 and 8 tonight, I'd invite your attention with me, centered primarily on the thrust of what Lucas read for us a few moments ago, those marvelous promises that God gave to none other than David, promises that not only would be beneficial to him in his day and time, but also for his son Solomon, and of course, by the greatness of God's prophetic power, also carry great meaning for you and me still today, 3,000 years later. What shall we say then about these promises? Let's begin to look interestingly as chapter 7 opens and build up to what in fact David had in mind as these promises were revealed unto him. The opening verses then of 2 Samuel chapter 7. David had an interesting desire. I would invite your attention as we read the first three verses of 2 Samuel 7 and note the desire of the heart of David on this occasion and at this time. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house... And the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in an house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. 
And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. With David having now successfully brought the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to the capital city of Jerusalem, he understood now that just as God had stated many years earlier, it dwelled in a tabernacle, which is a word that simply means a tent. On that occasion, David had as the desire of his heart to erect a structure, a physical edifice, a temple, if you will, in which that ark could find its residence, a place to honor the God who, in fact, was the God of that ark, a God who was the God of Israel. We could well imagine the excitement of David's heart at the very thought of the erection of such a temple and the greatness that would surround it, the power that would be behind it. Interestingly, in verse 3, Nathan commented, Go, do all that is in thine heart. Nathan was one of the prophets that was active and alive at the time of David's rulership and reign. And initially, Nathan gave his fullness of his approval and God's approval to the construction of such a temple. Might we pause for a moment, though, and note an interesting lesson. In verse 1, we notice that David had rest round about from all his enemies. This was a time in which a degree of prosperity was being enjoyed by Israel, a time when, at least for a little while, national security was not a problem. David had rest from all his enemies. And to be sure, there were many of them. In fact, chapter 8 will reveal to us a bit later in the lesson tonight a host of those who, in fact, had a desire to affront David, not the least of which was the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, as well as some others. On this occasion, David had rest. Any nation that's able to appreciate a degree of physical blessing upon their behalf, a degree of, for instance, an economy that has a degree of vitality to it, food that seems to be plentiful, should not that nation appreciate the handiwork of the God of heaven on its behalf and all the greatness to be appreciated from it? Of the hundreds of nations around the world in which you and I live, are not many of them suffering beneath the incredible burden of inflation that runs at well over 50 to 60 percent, problems with food supply, problems with sufficiency in water, and yet David understood on this occasion he had rest from his enemies. It might well be noted in Proverbs 14, for instance, verse 34, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Or when we appreciate Psalm 144, verse 15, the closing verse to that chapter, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. Earlier in that same book, in Psalm 33, 12, are we not there of a position to read, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We here, certainly in our better moments, well remember how blessed we are and how blessed we've been. May we ever keep God in the forefront of our thinking and allow Him to dictate and guide the direction that we take so that we, like David, can appreciate we've got rest from the primary nature of our enemies. We might well appreciate, though, in what way did this saga proceed onward with Nathan giving his initial direction of blessing to this. Might we notice in verse number 4, God, however, had something to say. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? 
several more things were shared by God with Nathan, and the idea was for Nathan to very properly and promptly reveal these things to David. Of those, I have listed the primary ones on the wall to my left. I'd invite your attention as we look at a few of them. Might we quickly note, too, that in the book of First Chronicles, much of this is given also in somewhat different detail, but the detail is ever so striking as it relates to the comparison of the two. Very carefully, Nathan was told, You tell David not to build me a house. David was not to do this, though Nathan had originally given his approval for such, but God intervened that night and said, David is not to build me a house. Though the idea was a good one, and it would come to fruition in the lifetime of David's son, it would not be David. That would be the primary force behind the erection of that majestic and extravagant temple. What's more, notice some of the other things in these passages. God reminded David through Nathan, he had been content now for hundreds of years with this tabernacle. It had been his direction through Moses to the children of Israel, Exodus chapters 25 to 40. And in that place, all the furnishings were in direct dictation to what God had commanded. Never had he commanded through a king or through a prophet that anything else was to be the case. Not only that, he was also told, David was, he was reminded in verses 8 and 9 that he had begun his journey so humbly. David, you had been a shepherd, and yet I have taken you and brought you to the heights of rulership. You are the leader of my people, the king of Israel. David was to never forget the humility with which he began that journey and the greatness and power that God being with him allowed him to accomplish. While David was yet young, that's when Goliath was felled. Though all of Israel was shaking and in great anxiety and fear, David went to the forefront and agreed to take on Goliath with no difficulty. And the only reason was God was with him. When David understood that thought, he would always remain near God and the kingdom would remain strong. That was, after all, the difficulty that had plagued Saul. Though he too had every opportunity to be great, when he elevated himself above the command of God, then God had to remove him. He was not a fit servant any longer. And isn't that true of us? When we think we know more than God, and we're unwilling to bend our will to His, we cannot be a useful servant to Him. It's when we can take His will, openly and submissively allow that to dictate our lives, and follow it completely, then He can use us in the most dramatic and powerful means possible. As long as David had that thought in mind, he could be a dramatic and powerful leader. Among the other things that Nathan was told to tell David, perhaps we can appreciate that greatness to us comes in exactly the same way. These thoughts I would submit to you for your consideration. As we just noted, when that greatness is seen in my life and yours, it is when we have allowed ourselves to be instruments in the hand of a great God. Paul seemed to feel dramatically in that fashion, did he not? He openly admitted that he was the least of all the apostles, and yet he also in the same context admitted that he had accomplished more than any of them. He didn't take that credit for himself. 
he in fact later would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 14, he had been a blasphemer and injurious to the cause of Christ, and yet God had fallen upon me the greatness of his mercy, and I have become one who could accomplish his will. Paul was thankful for his ability to simply preach the truth, to preach the gospel. He knew that in that preaching he could accomplish so much for the goodness of God's cause. As we come then to verse 11 in 2 Samuel 7, we read, And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused them to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. Isn't the wording remarkable? It had been David's desire to build God in house, and yet God through Nathan tells David that he will make you in house. David's house is here referenced. As you and I note the next several verses, there is a set of language and promises unfolded before our reading that is truly majestic and ever unending in its nature. Let us revisit these words again in the next few verses. Beginning in verse number 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I, this is God speaking, will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. It had been the desire through many ages past from the perspective of David as Isaac, as Abraham, as Jacob had heard command of God that their seed would be as the sand of the sea, as the stars of the heaven. Here also God told David that I will set up thy seed after thee. And notice it will be directly beginning with your descendants, David, out of your bowels, verse number 12, and I will establish his kingdom. One of David's sons would ascend the throne following him and would reign as king of Israel in the aftermath of David, or following that of David. Might we notice that the kingdom of Israel was still relatively young in terms of being united. Saul had been the first king. David now is only the second. Maybe David had begun to wonder, what will happen to the empire after my demise? What will happen to this nation of Israel after I'm gone? David has already now been told by God one of his sons would reign as the next king. You and I already know who that is. It'll be Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. As we study further in the book, we will learn more about him. And 1 Kings, of course, details his reign in its entirety. But notice there were more things told by God to David. Verse number 13. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David's demise was described in verse 12. When your days, David, are fulfilled, and when you sleep with your fathers, that's when we notice in verse 13, he, your son, will build me that temple that you have in mind. As we learn in 1 Chronicles, God did allow David to prepare many of the things, the elements and instruments used to construct it, but ultimately the job of building it, as far as oversight, would be left to Solomon. In fact, in chapter 17 and 18 of 1 Chronicles, much of that detail is set forth for our consideration. But here, I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And would you note with me the manner in which that verse closes? It closes with a word that rings with such greatness and power forever in the King James translation. There is a hint that there is something dramatic behind what God has in mind. 
not just a temporary reign, not just a short-sighted one, one that will last perpetually and one that will last on and on. On to verse 14 we go. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. We have well seen already in our study that when Saul acted in foolishness, when he acted with presumptuousness and disobeyed the command of God, God chose to remove him. And notice the dynasty of Saul never was established. God here through Nathan forewarned David that there will be a dynasty for you. Your descendants will reign on the throne of Israel forever. And in fact, speaking first of all with regard to Solomon, when he sins, when he does that which is wickedness, I will chasten him. But notice, I will not take my mercy from him in the same way I did Saul. I won't remove the character of rulership from your descendants, David, It'll be perpetual, and it'll last forever. Can you imagine the sense of greatness that David felt and the blessing he must have appreciated by virtue of the thoroughness and expansiveness of this blessing? It is to be noted in verse 16 that God goes on to say this, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. We see here thus stated yet again, the fact that this kingdom would last and be established forever. Now, as you and I trace the thinking through the Old Testament, do we not run into difficulty here? There was a time that Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity, the northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity. Did God keep His promise to David? And if so, in what fashion did that come to its fruition? We will understand the kings of Judah were all lineal descendants of David. And in that sense, that part of the promise was entirely fulfilled. But the very last of the kings of Judah was named Zedekiah. One, in fact, another of those descendants. When they were taken into captivity, can we well remember they did come forth from that captivity? It wasn't such that they were completely exterminated, but rather, upon their return, what can be said of Zerubbabel? in the book of Nehemiah, and in the book of Ezra. He too was a descendant of David. And when he returned and became the ruler of that kingdom, God's promise flowed onward throughout the centuries of time. And ultimately, without question, the greatest emanation of it is found in the New Testament. For in the opening verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1 verse 1, what is it there that we read? Speaking about the genealogy of Jesus the son of Abraham, the son of David. Our Lord was a direct descendant through David. He came to the lineal line of David a thousand years after David walked upon this earth. And did not the Holy Spirit in fact state through the writing of Luke in Luke one thirty two that that thing born unto you Mary, as Mary was addressed, shall be the son of the highest and on the throne of David shall he reign forever. You see, the Lord was to ultimately ascend also the throne of David over Israel, and there He still reigns. Peter said so in Acts chapter 2, verse number 30. On that first Pentecost sermon, that great lesson revealed that day, Peter directly said that in regard to the patriarch David, he is both dead and buried, and the sepulcher is with us, Acts 2.29. But then the very next verse, 
he quoted the very words of David himself from the book of Psalms and said, This man Christ now sits on his throne reigning over Israel. You and I, as we noted in the Bible class this morning, are the spiritual Israel. God reigns over that Israel through the character of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This promise thus given to Samuel through in the book of 2 Samuel, speaking in regard to David, in fact, finds its greatest emanation again in the nature of the Christ whom we serve. He still reigns over Israel. In fact, as we come to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, on the last occasion when the end of time shall have come, the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, shall be handed over by the one currently reigning over it to the Father. Notice the thoroughness then. Christ is now reigning and will reign until time shall be no more. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That what David was told some three millennia ago now, is the very thing that you and I marvelously receive as blessing, the kingdom of Israel. To note that thought will in fact march us through basically the rest of chapter number 7. For upon hearing this in verse number 18, David was overwhelmed in greatness and overwhelmed with a sense of true marvelousness at what he had just heard. David did not take it trivially. He knew the greatness of what God had just told him. Might I ask you to notice in passing that one of the thoughts about this text that has been used so very often to teach that which it does not teach is to ask the question again about the nation of Israel lasting forever. There are those upon our earth who pay great attention to physical Israel. That little piece of land that's just to the east of the Mediterranean Sea, just to the west of the Jordan River, bordered on the south and on the north by various modern nations that you and I know so well. There are those who teach that in the premillennial idea, Christ is coming back to reign literally in that place, and all individuals that follow Him must come there and find their utopia on earth. Friend, the Old Testament in this passage does not teach that. Where is it ever said that that nation is physical? As you and I have noted in the New Testament, it's identified, Israel is, as the Israel of God, Romans eleven twenty six, and it is the church, Galatians 6, verse 16. You and I are the Israel of God. You and I as Christians are those that have power with God. And as such, we strive on His behalf in a world that's overcome in many ways by the adversary, the devil himself, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. To say those thoughts is to say that beginning in verse number 18, Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? Over the next few verses, David pours out his spirit, if you will, before God in great thankfulness for the promise that has been revealed and looks forward to the accomplishment of it in the life of his son, in fact, David beseeches God that it would come to pass as God had just revealed. The consideration concerning those things leads us to some more notes on the next screen. I would ask you to notice the humble way that David responds to what God had said. Verse number 22. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, 
whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, before thy people which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. We have a portrait of a man, though king of Israel, who was nonetheless earnest, honest, submissive, and very interested in the things divine in nature. David prayed, in fact, and beseeched God that that which he had revealed would come to pass in the livelihood of his son and for the kingdom of Israel. David was not a selfish man. He was not one who, with greatness and excited character, looked forward to what benefit was in it for him. Notice, he said, what about this people who are thy people, this nation of Israel? Isn't it wonderful in the church that we have a brother and sisterhood who are at our side and at our back, ready to support and encourage us? For we're members of God's family. Sometimes we sing a song in the book, God's Family, that we can cry together, laugh together, share together, pray together. A family like David appreciated Israel. Isn't it interesting that it was the character of Israel that reverberated in David's mind when he slew Goliath? For he knew God was on his side and Israel's side and not on Goliath's side and the Philistine side. That made all the difference to David. Could it not well be said, if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 Are you and I not always led in triumph in Christ? 2 Corinthians 2.14 Are you and I not the ones that are victors? Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 and following. The victory to be had in us is that victory then that God makes possible and that He makes available. As chapter 7 races to its conclusion, David extolled God's greatness and His goodness in many ways. And thus, in verse 29, the last verse of that chapter, we read, Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee, for thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. And with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. When you and I close a prayer and use the word amen, that simply means let it be or so be it. It's as if David was saying, God, let it be what you have stated. Let the promises you have uttered come to pass. Let them be. He gave his full assent to what had been uttered. May you and I thus, as we open the pages of God's Word, be ever diligent and happy to say, Lord, let it be what you've declared. May we live our lives in such a way that that thing that he has declared may come to pass, and it may well be. With the closing of chapter number 7, we might observe that some of the things stated in it are such that they lead us directly into chapter 8. Chapter 8 is a bit briefer, but the ideas behind it are much different. Now, as we have looked at the success and the peacefulness that characterized David's kingdom, the fact that there was rest from his enemies, chapter 8 now takes us to a time later in his reign, when in fact we do appreciate somewhat of a tally of the victories that he had exhibited and that he had enjoyed. Well, that said, let's turn and look then at chapter number 8. In this chapter of some 18 verses, we notice it begins in verse number 1 in, the, in this fashion. And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methegemah out of the hand of the Philistines. And immediately we encounter a rather unusual name. In fact, to appreciate some of the 
things seen here. Chapter number 8, if we were to remember but one thing about it, is a listing of some of the military victories that David had enjoyed and that had been given him, of course, by God. The first thing to be noted, victory again over the Philistines. They had been a thorn in Israel's side for centuries prior to this. Even the children of Israel in the days of Moses and Joshua had to wrestle with, with them. Now we notice that by the leadership of God, victory had been given. Interestingly enough, they, that word in verse number 1, that seems so unusual. In the Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 18, as these ideas are also given for our study there, Gath is the city that is under description, and thus it would seem that the city of Gath went also by a different name. This name, Metheg Emnah. You might know to the American Standard that the rendering of that unusual phrase is the bridal of the mother city, and appears to have been perhaps the capital, if not one of the capital cities, of the Philistine Empire. David apparently had been able to capture it, had been able to understand victory over it. But notice, that's not the only empire that he fought against, verse number 2. He also fought and smote Moab, and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground, even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. We notice the victory over the Moabites is given in some detail. David apparently formed the Moabites into lines, and he slaughtered two of the lines that he fashioned and made. One of the lines were kept alive. And those that were kept alive were made vassal subjects to Israel. That is to say, they were forced to pay tribute to Israel, and they were Israel's servants. Notice again the Moabites and how often that they had also caused problems, and now David had victory even over them. Following that, we notice in verse number 3, other empires and other particular regions were also noted over which David had victory. Beginning in verse 3 and continuing for the next several verses, various regions of the Syrian empire are mentioned. Verse 3, David smote also Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. Many details are already given. We might first inquire, where was Zobah? In terms of the Syrian Empire, Zobah was merely one sector or region within that empire. And I've tried to point out a bit of what we seem to know about it. It was located just north of Damascus and was a region in that place, and David had victory over it. The king of this particular region was Hadadezer, the son of Rehob. With David's victory over it, more details in verse 4 are provided. I've listed some of the things to be seen there. 1,700 horsemen were captured and taken by David. 20,000 foot soldiers. The horses of that place were in fact lamed. But the word in the King James is a little bit different. It says David hawed all the chariot horses in that verse, but that word in the Hebrew simply means he lamed them. All except a hundred which he reserved in order to operate or to in fact pull, pull the chariots. In fact, in verse number 5 and following, the Syrians of this region were not willing to give up so easily. They besought aid from other places. And when these Syrians came from Damascus, in verse 5, David slew 22,000 of them. 
Interestingly enough, David's victory over the Syrians seemed to be virtually complete and virtually entire. At this point, would it not be fair to say, in terms of the victories that David had, that though these individuals had been problems for so long for Israel, now there was a king on the throne whose attention was directed toward God. And when God was with them, though Israel was not great in size, they had victory over their enemies. It's a timeless lesson to ever remember that military strength is not the single success of a nation. It is, in fact, not to be found in tanks and bombs and bayonets. What makes a nation strong is its tie to God. And that's the only thing that makes it strong. When a nation forgets God, Psalm 917, God will turn them into hell. When a nation loses its understanding for the Almighty and what is behind them in force, that nation is quickly going to slide down a slippery slope of destruction. Of course, we in America should ever be mindful of the extent of His blessings and ever quick to give the glory and honor to Him. Ben Franklin maybe said it best on one occasion when the Continental Congress met, when he in fact stated, If a sparrow cannot fall without his knowledge and aid, can it ever be thought that a nation can rise to greatness without his support? Perhaps the greatness of those words are self-evident. We understand them, of course, well in our land. May we never forget them. David seemed well to know it, and he knew that's where the strength of his empire was. A little bit later, just though we aren't quite there yet, in chapter 11, we will come to a time when David momentarily will forget it, and Israel will suffer. He as a person will suffer. His rulership will suffer. But when David understood that God was the power and that he merely needed to do that which was God's bidding and direct the nation in that appropriate way, Israel was an unbeatable foe. Looking further in chapter number 8, we've seen victory over the Moabites, victory over the Philistines, victory over the Syrians. Let us look further. In verses 6 and 7, in regard to the Syrians, there's more to be said about them. David, in verse 7, took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And much of this spoil that David was blessed to be able to take would be later used, as it was melted down and refined, of course, to make part of the instruments of the temple that his son would build in the next generation. Verse number 8. And from Beta and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took exceeding much brass. So there seems like a good question. A lot of the brass that would finally be used in the Assyria, or rather in the Israelite Empire found its way from Hadadezer and that region known for its brass mining in that area of Syria known as Zobah. Perhaps it'd be fair to say in verse number 9, when Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram his son to King David. Here was a king, another region that desired to make peace with David. He wasn't interested in fighting. He wasn't interested because he had seen David's victory over the mighty Syrians led by Hadadezer and led by the others of that era. To note just a few of the things then that we've seen, one more nation became a vassal empire to, to Israel. And again, I use that word with a degree of care. That simply means that these other nations had to pay tribute to Israel. They would send them gifts and precious things and that filled the coffers of David. 
And that would be part of what would make Solomon the richest king, perhaps, that had ever lived. I list on the wall at this particular time a map that attempts to describe the basic setting of these nations as they're all listed in this chapter. If we could point out just a few of them quickly in passing, we certainly could see, if perhaps if you're close enough at least, that we have the Amalekites here. They're listed as those over whom David reigned. We can also see the others as they're appearing in various places, the Philistines over here near the coast. The Syrians up in this given area with a longer arrow, that's where Zobah was, for example. This area over to the right was the Ammonites and then the Moabites. We begin to gain a feeling that Israel controlled virtually all of this territory when David was king. And by and large, when Solomon was king, he would even extend the borders just a little bit more. How wonderful it was, the prosperity to see Israel when they followed their heavenly father when they follow the God of heaven. As the chapter moves onward, we notice Edom is mentioned in verse 14. If we could point that out too, Edom was in fact here far down in this region. David even had control over them. They were of course the descendants of Esau. And isn't it interesting that on this occasion, they too became in essence those who had to give a degree of justice in regard to David and his reign. Verse 15 concludes by saying, David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. He was a ruler that had a degree of fairness with executive service in regard to accomplishing what was noble and right. The chapter quickly moves to its conclusion by listing some of the officers in David's empire. I too have tried to put those together in the following way for the titles are those that too would make fairly good questions. The person in control of the army or in, us, in essence the one who was his military commander was Joab. The one who was the recorder was Jehoshaphat. The gentlemen who played the role of the priests were both Zadok and Ahimelech. Finally the scribe was Sariah and that one who had control of David's bodyguards who in essence was the director of his secret service of that day, was none other than a gentleman named Beniah. As all of those are studied and listed, the chapter comes to a close. We see the victories that David had had, the joy that were those who were Israelites at the time, for the empire was prosperous, and they followed the God who loved them and the God who had taken care of them. We can close our lesson too this evening by perhaps summarizing it in these ways. What a blessing it was to live in Israel at that time. For God's promise to David was something he took to heart. He understood the blessing that would come to his son as being able to rule over Israel, but he knew well that the promise was to last far longer than that. This would be a good time for us to recall one of the passages found in Psalm 89, written, of course, by David. In the 89th Psalm, God there in fact told him that my promise to you and your family, to your seed, I will never forget. Isn't it still the case as Jesus the Messiah reigns over spiritual Israel that God has never forgotten that promise? In fact, it was so certain that the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 8 would say it this way, just as certain as the rising and setting of the sun is my promise regarding the house of David. May you and I put our confidence and trust in a God that's that steadfast, a God that's that certain. 
Peter perhaps closed it well by saying, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter 3, verse 9. Tonight, have you placed your life into the hollow of the hand of the one who can take such good care of it? You need to be a Christian if you're not tonight. You need to come in humble obedience to the commandments. For after all, Jesus died for you. Believe him to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess his name as the Son of God. And then be baptized. Upon so doing, he will add you to the church. Acts 2.47 And as you walk faithfully until death, the crown of life will be awaiting you. As we read in James 1, verse 12, as well as Revelation 2, verse 10. If we could be of assistance in that way, or in a praying on your behalf for rededication of your life, we'd be honored to do either one tonight. If we could be of assistance, would you not let it be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing?